We hear the voice of God through the reading of those sacred words. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here this morning. We are a small but mighty community. On days like this, when I see the size of our children's gathering, I'm reminded that we need to be good to them, sessions, whatever they want, because they could vote us out of power on a morning like this. So, Aurelia made snacks, there's goldfish, whatever they need. So, um, I have the privilege this morning of preaching from Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. I wanted to tell you at the outset of this sermon that in a few minutes, I'm going to be sharing a significant part of my own personal story, and it has to do with domestic abuse. I want you to know this because there are some among us who might be blindsided and even experience some kind of re-traumatization through the bits I share about my own story. I want you to know this is coming. I will introduce it in a few minutes here, and if you're just not in a place where you want to be exposed to that kind of material this morning, I understand. You're welcome to just go hang out in our entryway, maybe go find some of that snack that Aurelia made, or go down to Greenhouse and have some brunch or something like that. In the 2014 movie Focus, Will Smith's character says that there are two types of people in this world. There are hammers and there are nails, and we each need to decide which we will be. I quote that not as an endorsement of that movie. I don't recommend you go see it, but I like the image. There are hammers and there are nails. Like most people, for most of my life, I've believed that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are the strong and there are the weak. The strong take what set the rules, break the rules, maintain control, are the winners, do the hammering. The weak passively stand by. They are the direct object of the action. Now, in doing the action, they are the losers. They are the nails. Maybe they hope at most that they don't get the attention of the strong. Maybe they can stay small and not be seen. Or maybe some of them hope to one day become the strong. We hear the term toxic masculinity in some parts of our society today. Terry Cooper's defines toxic masculinity as the constellation of socially regressive male traits that serve to foster domination, the devaluation of women, homophobia, and wanton violence, end quote. We might give toxic masculinity the simple definition of behaviors and beliefs that support dominance of one person over another. All definitions fall short, but that's a, a decent start. Growing up, I didn't really need a definition of this word or even the term itself to understand this idea. Although I was never formally given a lesson in how to be a hammer or a nail, I just learned it. Of course, we call that culture, right? I learned firsthand in my family of origin that there was only one hammer in our family, and the rest of us were nails. I grew up with a father who, as an alcoholic, would rage unpredictably and become incredibly violent toward my brother and sister and me and the women in his life. 
I am a survivor of domestic abuse and, in particular, child abuse. He could become a hammer in an instant, and any hammering he did was justified in his mind, period. Some of you know what this is like. I debated whether or not to share this part of my life in this context here this morning, and I've chosen hopeful that it will be helpful to those listening. And October also happens to be Domestic Violence and Abuse Awareness Month, so this seemed appropriate when we're doing a sermon on strength and power. My earliest memory is a very violent one of him putting his booted foot as hard as he could into my mom's chest. And the significant memories of my childhood are almost all points of violence and abuse. Growing up, I saw only one kind of strength and power exercised. I saw the hammer as only a tool of destruction and demolition, never a tool of construction and repair. It was always punitive, not protective. It was always life-taking, not life-giving. It was exercised unilaterally. It was never shared. In fact, I learned to think, growing up in that situation, that this is how you treat people when you need them to change. It's not uncommon to hear therapists and counselors say that hurt people hurt people, or that the oppressed become the oppressed source. I've seen this pattern play out around me as unsuspecting nails are forged into hammers through abuse and violence. In my own life, I remember being 17 years old and my dad telling me that I needed to go rough up my younger brother some to get him to obey. And so when I went to his place to pick him up because he hadn't shown up for school in several days, I remember bullying him, speaking very harshly to him, just being a jerk. It still embarrasses and brings a feeling of guilt to me to this day later. Unfortunately, my story is not uncommon. I feel pretty confident that in our community, even a small gathering like this this morning and those that will be listening to the message online, there will be people who can relate to all of this, who have experienced it firsthand or know somebody that has. I've spent the past six years of my life facing and working through all this by going to therapy, by doing a good bit of group work. There's a wonderful 12-step group for people who have lived through what I've lived for. It's called Adult Children of Alcoholics, ACA. They've been a helpful community for me. Two books that have been helpful for me on my journey, uh, The Wish for Power and the Fear of Having It by Althea Horner. And the second is Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. These are great resources. And Anna, you mentioned one to me earlier that I've already forgotten. What was the title? Christian Men Who Hate Women, women by Margaret Rink. Yeah. Of course, some of the most healing uh, that I've experienced has come because of the people in my life. I, I firmly believe that our deepest wounds come in community. And it takes community for us to move toward healing and wholeness. Hence the title I chose when I became a pastor here, the pastor of community care. I believe in the power of community. Chief among these relationships for me have been Heather and the kids and people I know through this faith community. 
Learning theology has been helpful for me in my journey of healing, but mostly what I've needed are a people who live a healthy theology, a life-giving theology, and that's what we're trying to do here at Peace every week. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series on these incredible sayings of Jesus, the Beatitudes. Personally, I think they're the most important part of our Bible. I know that kind of makes me a heretic to the theology police police that might be listening. I'm not supposed to have a Bible within the Bible or a canon within the canon, but whatever, I think these words and the longer discourse by Jesus that they introduce are the key for understanding God. Now, the Gospel of Matthew, where we're reading from today, although Luke also has the Beatitudes, he tells it from his own perspective, but the Gospel of Matthew often presents Jesus as the new Moses. Moses was a fairly important character in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, if you remember, which is why we find Jesus on a mountain in these verses, like Moses went up the mountain to meet with God. And that's why we find Jesus giving us eight blessings or beatitudes, just like Moses gave us ten commandments. Jesus' purpose is to teach us the core characteristics and behaviors for those who would follow him. We are constantly bombarded with messages of who we should be and how we should act from people in our lives and from this world and from society and from marketing. Maybe in your system, in your context, the role you've been put into is you have to be the peacemaker. That's what your system expects of you or the caregiver or the problem solver or the problem child maybe. Think about in your own family or group of friends There are hammer and nail rules and expectations placed on you by others, and many times we are unaware of them. I remember when I took a semester off from college to make some money, and I thought I would try my hand at selling cars. That's tough work. That's work that will make you get back into college pretty quickly. (laughs) I remember hustling to try to make sales, beating people to the phone when calls would come in, partnering with one of the older salesmen to work together to close deals. And there was this other salesman that thought I was acting unethically because I was hustling so hard, and he said to me one day, and you call yourself a Christian. You see, this is why we need the words of Jesus. The world will try to limit us and to put us into the roles that it needs us to play. But God's words come to us to liberate us to break open our current paradigm so that we might be more free to follow God's Spirit in doing the healing work that it is about in our world. Many people want to offer us their perceptions of how we should behave. But as we go through this series on the Beatitudes, I invite you to consider how those expectations placed on you line up or don't line up with how Jesus says his followers will live in this world. Last week, Aurelia preached on the necessity of anger. I'm a little jealous. I would have liked to preach that one. Anger is my favorite. Like Elf says, hugs are my favorite. Anger is my favorite. Go back and listen if you missed it. It's posted. She said, rage is required. Huh? Rage? Anger? From a Christian? That's right. Anger is required. And today we're talking about Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Uh, Just yesterday, in fact, 
a pair of Jehovah's Witness missionaries came by my house, and as is my practice, I try to make time to talk to them as much as I can. I find them fascinating. It's interesting to me. I, I appreciate their passion. So we probably talked for about 20 minutes yesterday, and at one point, the older gentleman said to me, have you ever heard the verse where it says, the meek will inherit the earth? I said, "Uh, I'm actually preaching on it tomorrow. (laughs) But we talked for a few minutes, and eventually I learned that when he used the word meek, he meant the good. The good will inherit the earth. And of course, the good ones are the ones who follow God. Seems simple enough. But to be honest, that's a bit too vague for me. I'm still not real sure what good means or what meek means. I remember in high school, one of my friends had a Nike t-shirt that had the picture of a football on the front, and on the words, and on the front it said, blessed are the meek. And on the back, it said, yeah, right, with the Nike swoosh logo. The message was, real winners aren't meek. Meek people don't make the football team. Meek people do other things. Maybe Nike was using the word meek like You've thought about it. Often when we hear the word meekness, we think weakness or weak. Or we might dress it up in its Sunday's best. We might spiritualize it and call it humility. Someone might say to us, remember, blessed are the humble. When what they really mean is, blessed are those who don't put up a fight. Blessed are those who are always sweet and kind, who go along and get along who don't make waves, who are submissive, who keep their eyes cast downward. Blessed are those who don't get too big for their britches, they might say. Oh my God, I hate that phrase, too big for my britches. Listen, who told you how big my britches should be? Huh? What's that any of your business? I'll pick my own size of britches, thank you very much. So what does Jesus mean, though, when he says, blessed are the meek? We know what people want it to mean for us, but what does Jesus mean when he says it? That word that we translate into English from the Greek, in which it's written, uh, we don't really have a perfect one-for-one match for it. Instead, it's two ideas that are sandwiched together. On the one hand, it means strength. And on the other hand, it means restraint. Strength and restraint. And these two ideas are joined together, sandwiched together into one concept. A metaphor for this might be the picture of a horse, incredibly strong, who is responsive to its rider. The horse has a tremendous amount of strength, but it is strength under control. Or we might say a picture for this could be fire, not a dumpster fire, not a fire that burns out of control, not a lava flow, but instead fire that burns within appropriate constraints, within a fireplace or a combustible engine or a candle. It could burn the house down, but instead it brings warmth and movement and light. What I want you to see this morning is that meek does not mean small or weak or insignificant. It means strength channeled or led by God's Spirit. Anger led by God's Spirit. Wisdom, wit, intelligence, guile, shrewdness led by God's Spirit. It's power, the use of power in a way that is not just 
destructive, but instead is creative, is generative, meaning it multiplies life, it magnifies life, it amplifies life, and that which is good. Meekness is spirit-led strength, an exercise of procreative power. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, and, and then he says something really interesting after that. He says, for they will inherit the land. When Kristen read it earlier, she read the version that says, for they will inherit the earth. I've read scholars that say a better translation is, for they will inherit the land. My father, whom I began telling you about, and I have had a very tentative relationship over the years. We've had what I would call a fragile peace based on an unspoken agreement that we wouldn't really talk about the abuse. We wouldn't talk about how he used power. This was our hammer and nail agreement. But, you know, getting to know this person, Jesus, will, it will really mess with all of your categories. Everything I read about him reveals that he is so strong and powerful, and yet he uses his power and strength in the service of life. Such as when he confronts a mob who wants to stone a woman. Such as the many times that he challenged religious systems that kept people separated from God. He always used his power and strength in the service of life, in the service of others. And I've been a part of this church where we get together and we tell one another again and again and again that God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of the marginalized, the exploited, the survivor. These are the ones that God calls blessed. And over time, a kind of knowing began to form in me. I began to know that the world is not only comprised of the strong and the weak, hammers and nails, but that there is a third way. Jesus calls it meekness or spirit-led strength. And so, about a month ago, I confronted my father because of the way he continues to treat people that I love. I told him if we were going to have a relationship, it would be based on talking about what he's done and what he continues to do to those in his life, and I would no longer be complicit with his behavior. I didn't blast him. I didn't go nuclear on him. I wanted to, my God, I wanted to reduce this man to ashes. I wanted to destroy him. I wanted to cause him much pain as he's caused others. But I didn't. I practiced as best as I know how spirit-led strength, exercising procreative power. When Jesus says to his followers that the meek will inherit the land, He's actually quoting Psalm 37. We read it earlier. But more importantly, he's reminding them of that Exodus story that they know deep in their bones. Do you know the Exodus story? That's, that's a whole other text we need to unpack to really understand this sermon, but I won't keep us here an hour to do that. The Exodus story, the story that says we might find ourselves held in slavery by the unrelenting and brutal grip of a pharaoh, but our way out of that slavery is not by becoming the Pharaoh, the strong, the hammer. 
And it's also not by being submissive and, and being a submissive and compliant nail for the Pharaoh to hammer on. No, that's not how you leave slavery and inherit the promised land. Jesus is saying, gather there to listen to him that day, that group of Jews, that you confront the Pharaoh with spirit-led strength, with meekness. Like Moses standing before Pharaoh and saying, I'm leading these people out from under your control, not because I have an army that rivals yours, but because God calls me to oppose your destructive use of power. Predictably, raged against Moses, and that was, of course, the response that I received too. Hammer's going to hammer. I don't know what you can do. But that doesn't mean that I have to be his nail. We are called to something else as followers of Jesus. I can think of the ways that we, as a community, strive to exercise spirit-led strength. But I know there's also ways that we need to grow in still. Where in your life are you called to exercise spirit-led strength? What are you called to build even though it would be easier to quit or to destroy? Where are you called to say the thing that no one else wants to say? Where are you called to cry when everyone is laughing or maybe laugh when everyone is crying? Reminds me of Wendell Berry's poem, The Contrariness of the Mad Farmer. You might look that one up as well. Where are you called to live all these beatitudes that we're studying in this season of life of our church? Are you willing to take that difficult journey with God out of Egypt, out of slavery under Pharaoh, and toward a land of promise, a land of hope? I cannot promise you it will be easy, but it's incredibly rewarding. Uh, in the days that followed my own experience of confronting my Pharaoh, I felt ill. I felt like I had the flu. This was a full-body experience for me. It really took that much out of me, but something else happened also. In the midst of perhaps the most difficult thing I've done in my adult life, I looked down, and beneath my feet was solid ground. God had placed land beneath me. That land was, of course, this community, my family, my co-pastors, my friends, those who are journeying alongside me. And it turns out that strength and power exercised for the benefit of other people populates your life with other people. Using your resources for the benefit of others, using your strength to strengthen, using your power to empower, begins a self-reinforcing cycle of life, creating life, community, creating community. We can call this eternal life. And blessed are the meek, Jesus said, for they will inherit it. Amen.